What's up, everybody? We have a World Series winner and a PhD candidate on the show, so we're coming out hot right away. Nick, go ahead and introduce yourself for anybody that uh, doesn't know who you are. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm Nick Shedd. I'm the head of strength and conditioning for the Houston Astros. Um, after grad school, I, I did a postgrad internship with uh, U.S. Army Special Operations Command. Uh, then I worked in the private sector for a while, then uh, spent three years working in Olympic sports with USA Field Hockey Women's National Team. Um, we missed qualifying for the Olympics in November 2019, so then when uh, COVID kicked in, it was, it was tough to get back into the job market, so I decided I wanted to go back to school. Uh, it was something I really wanted to do anyways, just for myself, and uh, so I started a program at uh, AUT, Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. And um, the, the objective was to actually move there, but then they started pushing visa applications back three months at a time, and that strung out for about a year or so, and I decided I needed to get back to work. So um, landed with the Astros, and now I'm doing both. So we were talking off air. Um, go ahead and tell the story about how you found out about not being with the field hockey team. Like, listen, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at how untasteful it was. It's not you. <laughs> how yeah, great it, was, uh, you know, it turned out. Yeah. 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 Honestly, uh, yeah, I don't want to get too, too much into it because it's always an ugly situation. But um, we went to India to play a, a two-game series against India. And um, – it was highest aggregate score goes to the Olympics. And uh, we were actually down four goals going into the second game. And we came back. We scored four. We were up 4-0 and uh, ended up giving up one more goal. So we had tied the aggregate and then um, lost by one. So you can imagine, you know, three, four years of training for those players and, and how much goes into that. We were pretty much training two days, five days a week that whole time. And, um to, to miss out by one, and I have to say this for context, um, our team averaged about 50 games of experience uh, per player, and, and Team India averaged about 212 games of experience per player. Um, so we were pretty proud of you know the product that, that we put out there, even though we didn't qualify. And um, yeah, before we even got to sit down and have uh, a team dinner, our, our CEO call, called our head coach and said, uh, after you get back from your 30 hours of travel back to the United States, We'll be waiting for you at the uh, at the complex, and so um, yeah, as things go, they uh, got rid of most of us, and that was in November 2019. Uh, then COVID hit, and uh, started the school thing, and then after a while, decided I need to get back to work because I wasn't going to be able to get to New Zealand anytime soon, and uh, started with the Astros in March of 2021. Uh, went uh, won the American League Championship, lost in the World Series, and then last year, obviously, we went back and won the World Series. And in that time frame, I had my well. This past January, I had my first kid, and I also bought a house oh, in that time frame. So I basically Jesus. went from being unemployed to being full time employed. <laughs> won a World Series, working on my doctorate, had a kid, bought a house. Uh, things changed pretty quickly, but I was unemployed for. Close to uh, close to 15 months, aside from a, a small business, I started with my brother just doing some consulting, which was basically something I was doing for free for a while. And then at that point, I needed money and said, you know what, I'm not doing this for free anymore. So. <clears throat> Let's start there for any of our listeners that might be like, okay, he's speaking to me. Uh, uh, you know, I've recently been let go. What was your mindset? How did you handle it? And then what's your advice? 
You know, I always thought after working in Olympic sports, I'd be set even if this happened. It's always an expectation in high-level sport. At some point, your shelf life with any one team expires. And um, I knew that if we didn't qualify, there was a chance that, that this would happen. But um, the, the having those expectations ahead of time didn't really help. Uh, once it happened, it was really, really hard. Um, it was difficult not being able to help pay the bills. It was difficult uh, because of COVID and everything that everybody else went through. And also just, um, you know, part of it was COVID, but going for a long period of time without landing on your feet, you start to wonder, do I need to change jobs? That was a very, cons a very serious consideration for a while. Should I just change career paths? And honestly, that was part of my motivation for going to school was, you know, at least I could have this fallback plan in, in academia. Um, Albeit, I think the ac academic world would tell you that COVID hit them pretty hard as well, and <laughs> it's not that easy to find a job. Um, but yeah, it, it's actually like a, a really stressful thing to, to go through. It's not, there's never a guarantee that you're going to get another job. I applied to probably 450 jobs. Um, I got three callbacks, and um, one of them I was told I didn't have enough baseball experience, ironically. I'm not going to mention who that was. Um, and, uh, Eating their hat was, now, motherfucker. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and there's the, <laughs> there, there were some others, uh, some interesting situations there. But you know, at the end of the day, it, it's like, are you overqualified for a position? Are you underqualified for a position? Those are real things that people look at. And then also, who do you know? Um, and then the whole stigma of like. You know, am I getting pegged as being the field hockey guy? Because I don't look mm. at myself that way. That's a place that I worked and I enjoyed it. But, um, you know, that's a, a weird thing that, that strength coaches run into for sure. Oh, definitely. In terms of guy. the field hockey guy stuff? No, I'm the rugby guy. <laughs> when I was in field hockey, oh. guy, now I'm in football and I'm the rugby guy. Um, soccer for the Americans. And then, yeah. how do you guys handle that? I mean, I'm the I, I'm the football guy now, right? Like the American football guy, but like again, same thing. I've worked in multiple sports. Um, any of our listeners out there? I mean, a, a majority of our population is is football guys, quote unquote, or basketball. Like both of you, what do you what do you recommend to them to be able to adapt? I mean, Nick, you've clearly been able to do it and win a World Series. Fernando, you're working over in the highest level of soccer. Like, yeah, but then when I'm in rugby, I'm like the tiny guy. So I think it's just a problem with me. <laughs> And this is now, Nick, you're now going to be interviewing Fernando and helping him out. <laughs> yes, no problem. Please, advice. Um, I kind of look at that whole thing as like it's a false uh, appeal to false authority, if you will. Like people will say, well, you know, you haven't been here long enough or, or you don't understand the sport because you didn't play it. Well, I did play baseball for like 10 years. I stopped when I was 12, but I'm also capable of using my eyeballs and my brain and, and looking at what's happening and assessing things and you wouldn't say to an orthopedic surgeon that oh, you're not a field hockey guy, therefore you can't uh, you know, reconstruct the ACL on a field hockey player. Um, coaches are not, strength coaches are not specialized in that regard. We're specialized in the human body. Um, so to me, that's all just nonsense. And it, it is something that depending on your, your venue, people will use against you. Um, there's certainly efficacy to working in a sport long enough to gain a much more in-depth understanding, but I think more of that value comes from the relationships you've created 
with the people within your organization and without those relationships you can't really affect change um, that doesn't mean somebody coming from the outside is any worse off and I would also say you know if you hired me to do a job then you shouldn't have done that if you don't trust me to do that job um, and sometimes uh, it's better to have a set of eyes coming from the outside you know you, what they call it, the, the Einstein effect where you know people become so specialized in a certain area and if everybody on your team is so specialized in the same area then you fail to come up with multiple solutions for any single problem and uh, to be able to have a, a breadth of knowledge is uh, as important or more important than to have depth of knowledge in any one specific area and so to me that's a, almost a, a compliment when when somebody says, you know, oh, you don't, you don't know this sport, or you don't come from this area, it's like, yeah, but, you know, I've worked with about a thousand different populations, and that's sort of where my edge comes from. Amen. That was unbelievable. I, I, I never kind of thought about it that way. I think your analogy with the, with the, the surgeons. Where'd you come up with that? Where'd you hear that? Um, honestly, I, I may have come up with that on my own. I, I don't really know. I, I've, I've heard this, this stuff, you know, for a while now myself and from other people and. You know, I don't know. The, the strongest pact seems to be college football. And, you know, guys are like, oh, you're not a college football guy. I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't scream enough. I'm not <laughs> – I don't have, uh, you know, discipline and attitude in my, my Twitter bio. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, all, it's all silliness. Um, you know, clearly you were able to turn that, you know, firing into something positive with the Astros. Um you know, you were you went across high level organizations, so that uh, I'm assuming you weren't quote unquote intimidated. But you know, sometimes I've, I've spoke with strength coaches where they're like, "Oh, you know, I see that logo MLB or NFL, and it kind of intimidates them." To our listeners out there, that maybe that's to them. What would be your piece of advice on being able to to talk with those high level executives in you know pro sports? Um, they don't know any more about the world that, that we work in than we do um, and good organizations uh, the highest level people recognize that and again they're hiring you and trusting you to do your job and give them advice um, and you just have to to trust what you believe in and um, have some conviction in what you're doing uh, ultimately the job is is from a training standpoint it's no different in professional baseball than it is in college or high school uh, baseball. We signed kids as young as 16. We got guys that are what? 40. So you're looking at the same concept of long-term athletic development. You're looking at the same uh, same levels of, of uh, emotional uh, maturity from the young guys. And uh, it's the, the, the principles remain the same, right? Younger guys are going to need probably more general training um, as guys get older and their training ages get higher and, and you know, if they become a uh, quote-unquote an old player in the league, their bodies might be a little banged up, then you have to get a little bit more, more dialed in with what you're doing. But, um, you know, our environment we have, when we break to our affiliates, our coaches have 26 guys per coach. Um, that's not scary for most people who have worked in a college setting and have had like eight teams to deal with. Yeah. Um, the amount of work is still the same ultimately, but it's just you're able to get a little more detailed with what you're doing because you have less players to work with. Um, 
as you're looking in, in now in this new ecosystem of baseball, uh, one of the things as an outsider, I you know, arm care. I feel like arm care is a, a very popular topic and banned arm work is probably everything that I've seen. Um, also, my cousin played Major League Baseball and I know arm care, right? Don't name names. Not asking you to do that. But like how is arm care bastardized globally and what should it be looked like for our listeners so they can do a good job? It is bastardized as um, as an end-all, be-all, and sometimes as the only tool that you need to stay healthy. Um, not even really getting into the fact that most arm care programs are, are just very general. Let's do some internal rotation, external rotation, um, etc. The adaptations that pitchers go through are very different from one guy to the next. I mean, you can see common patterns, but there's about 10 different common patterns that guys will fall into posturally and in terms of scapular movement, etc. But when you see arm care programs, everybody goes out and does the exact same thing. Um, do you do it post throw? Do you do it pre throw? Uh, those things make a difference. If you don't, if you're a guy that falls on the, the spectrum of I throw really hard, but I don't actually produce a lot of lower body power, you're probably at higher risk for injury as a result of that. You have to look at where um, where that that force is being generated, where it's being transferred through. Um, and, and so when people think arm care, they're thinking about their shoulder, but. Uh, for some reason, I, I don't know how that gets isolated because when they're on the mound, they're always talking about timing and sequencing and everything having to do from the lower half through the upper half. But then when they talk about taking care of the arm, it's like, no, let's just do some some J-band stuff and, and call it a day. Um, with respect to that, how do you then go about addressing it? Do you like how do you categorize it, or, or do you categorize it like, and how do you segment it? Because I'll piggyback off of it. Can this be applied for quarterbacks or other sports where they may have to throw it? Let's say water polo. Oh, 100%. Water polo is almost its own beast. Um, I'll get back into that in a second. We have a catcher who's one of the best arms uh, I've ever seen, and uh, he was a water polo player, and we think that had something to do with it. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you know, the first thing I'll do is I'll talk to the pitching coaches and the hitting – or well, pitching coaches, hitting coaches, whoever, but – uh, talk about pitchers. Um, I'll talk to the pitching coaches and the players and ask them, what are you working on specifically on the mound? Um, that'll give us an idea right off the bat if there's an intervention that would be possible in the weight room setting for us to make that could positively impact what they're doing on the mound. And then we'll use our evaluation skills. We'll, we'll look at common uh, postural adaptations to pitching and, and things that we know are little more on the risk factor scale scale what becomes difficult is identifying what is a positive adaptation that's helping them perform versus something that is either inhibiting them from performing or is bordering on becoming pathological and that's where having conversations with the coaches and the player are really important um, you know are they struggling to hold their hinge when they're trying to drive down the mound or uh, sometimes you'll hear oh yeah you know my, my lumbar spine on one side just always gets tight as the day goes on and Certain little things like that become your indicators of now it's time to start trying to affect change instead of um, just trying to make this guy more powerful. I probably need to, to dive a little deeper. <clears throat> no, I, I hopped into you, you talking about that. Um, 
as they're, you know, continuing to be that conversation, are you guys, you know, starting off with some sort of assessment of internal, external, arm by the side, arm like, and if so, why? And if not, why not? Like, does it matter? Does it not matter? Um, we do not take every player through a uh, biomechanical assessment the moment they walk in the door. Uh, it's really hard to do with 250 players uh, coming. You guys have that and... many people? Sorry yeah, to we've got 70 in the DR and another uh, 110 stateside. Or excuse me, Holy 180. Cow. 180 stateside. Wow. Um, yeah, so when they show up for spring training, it's like get their physicals done. We're usually practicing that same day. Um, what I did last year, so last year was my second season in the organization. Uh, we weren't really looking at much of this stuff at all. We do measure, we use force plates and we do measure cuff strength, um, but even that is limited. It's really hard to measure internal, external rotation, shoulder strength at really extreme positions that they get into. Um, so we started last year, I created a uh, a screening model and required all of our coaches to do this on every pitcher once per month. And it was basically looking at postural photos um, from the front, back, and side, as well as taking videos of shoulder overhead flexion and um, abduction. And then using that to start to bucket guys and um, really just removing pieces from their program that were going to drive them into worse positions and adding pieces to their program that were going to put them in better positions. And then this year, we took it a step further, um, and I developed a, a curriculum for um, for really, I, I don't know if I call it manual muscle testing, but uh, a, a broader skill set of hands-on evaluation stuff, much much more in-depth than uh, like your typical FMS or Y-balance test. Um, this is really getting guys on a table and taking a deep dive, which is something I don't think most strength coaches get taught in school, um, but now, uh, we developed that curriculum and our, our coaches have that tool in their toolbox and now they're able to solve more problems. Do you guys do the upper body Y balance test? We don't. Okay. The only, and I'm not asking, like I, I only asked because my athletic trainer and I were trying to figure out some things for, uh, anybody that maybe had some upper body injuries. We were looking at utilizing that, um, Another question when you mentioned question I have when you mentioned manual muscle testing is are you guys manual muscle testing um, you know serratus strength as measured by like laying down and doing uh, serratus punch or some sort of version of scaption and then being like oh look you're so incredibly weak or how do you guys go about assessing that because I've heard other strength coaches vent to me about that from their athletic trainer. We don't measure that uh, using any kind of dynamometer. Um, we will have guys do push-ups or, or what do you call them, push-up plus, um, yeah. where they're getting into full protraction and uh, using a just a simple cat camel as a uh, as part of our screening tools. What I taught our coaches is really has nothing. We're, we use a ton of objective measurement in terms of output, but this testing. Um, that we put together, we basically threw away the goniometers. We threw away anything that that's going to get down into the the nitty gritty and the, the really granular. Like, oh, uh, he has twenty nine degrees of external rotation or something like that. Um, we are looking for big picture. What are the most common patterns that we're going to see? Um, and if we can't detect a movement restriction or a problem with our naked eye, then it's probably not going to be something that's negatively affecting them on the field. 
um, when we get into the goniometry and, and a lot of the dynamometry stuff, that's more in the rehab setting. Um, but we feel like we can affect change and also uh, screen guys in a way that's, that, that fits with our workflow if we are looking at more, uh, more obvious restrictions in movement rather than uh, trying to get super, super fine with it. One last question on the arm care stuff. Why is bench pressing in the outside world seem like it is uh, absolute should never do? And same thing with overhead pressing. Uh, I think there's a, a few arguments against it. Um, I wholly believe pitchers should bench press. Um, I think number one, it's because the best position to bench press from is having your scaps locked back on a bench and of course we talk about free scat movement all the time with overhead athletes um, but I would just say you know if you're bench pressing one time a week that's and everything else you do is allowing for free scat movement that's probably not going to cause you problems um, if guys are already in poor postural positions that could create unnecessary wear and tear on the labrum um, assuming you let them move into ranges of motion that uh, that they don't have but again that's something that's controllable um, but pec tendon strength is incredibly important for the transfer of velo and getting from that laid back position to accelerating the arm forward and we stand on the side of um, you know of course we want to minimize injury rates but we are chasing performance and those two things are not mutually exclusive. Our field seems to think you have to focus on one or the other, but they're really one and the same if you're doing it correctly. Um, the things will help performance, will prevent injury. And, um, you know, if you ask any player in our organization, hey, we could baby you and not have you lift weights and, and just try to keep <laughs> you on the field, but you have a 10% chance of making it to the big leagues, or we could push the envelope. Maybe there's slightly higher risk, but now you've got 30% chance. They're all going to say, let's push the envelope. And the organization would too. You know, our job is in, in professional baseball is to create value. And um, you don't do that if you're, if you're working with the same guy, the same platform year after year. You have to make them better year after year. <clears throat> Switching gears, what is the PhD on and what have you been learning? It is on uh, the relationships between sleep and physical performance in professional baseball players. Uh, Let's dive into that. Sleep, very important topic. What have you learned? What's the new research out there, my man? Oh, uh, the interventions are the hard part, right? We all know that we need more sleep. Um, we know that nighttime training loads, especially high nighttime training loads, Ooh. can negatively impact sleep. Um, and that's your population. like. Yeah. And I'm sure they're all stimulating up, getting coffee, like let alone maybe any of the relief pitchers that are like, they may go in, they may not, they get all fucking amped up. Like that's what my cousin was having to do, right? Or shit, how do you yeah. handle that, man? Two scoops of C4, four cups of coffee, just in case you're fucking going. <laughs> like, I'm not going on the bus, I'm running home. We're streaking to the gymnasium. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I'll meet you there. <laughs> I'll carry my yeah, own bag. That's a tough one. You know, I try to encourage pitchers if you're not if you're not hot that night, uh, try not to to overstimulate yourself. But I mean, it's sort of baseball culture, anyways. It's cup of coffee, throw a dip in. Cup of coffee, throw a dip in, and that's like your entire day. So, uh, coffee, dip, coffee. You know, we're 
we're trying to get uh, we're trying to change that whole, I think that's a bigger uh, a better place to start is like the overload of stimulants all day long um, but you know uh, I'll give you spring training as an example uh, there's there's some behavioral research around sleep where people believe that okay if I start the later I start training in the morning our athletes are just going to stay up infinitely later as well and it's just yeah. not true yeah. Um, if you start training at 9 a.m. or later, your athletes are likely to get eight or more hours of sleep. If you start training um, any earlier than that, 8, uh, 7 a.m., then they're likely to get six and a half or four and a half to five hours of sleep um, because there are certain social aspects as well as the uh, circadian rhythm manipulated by the sun, which you also can't fight, uh, where people are probably going to go to bed around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whatever. Um, and uh, you'd be better off starting training after 9 a.m. than uh, at 6.30 a.m. Uh, so a lot of this stuff comes down to organizational um, changes. And then there's, you know, you play six games in a row at minor league affiliates. And uh, at the end of the sixth game, then you get on a bus and you travel. And uh, for like our team in Corpus Christi, most of their travels are 12 to 16 hours. So if... You know, let's say that's a night game. They're getting on the bus at 11. They're getting to their destination at noon the next day. Then their sleep is jacked up, and you have this social jet lag that affects them for the next two or three days. And that's God. every single week that that's happening. Um, and, you know, and the, another sort of fallout piece that we found just by ha starting to have conversations with our players is there's actually a lot of uh, a, a lot more prevalent anxiety and, and stress issues that are impacting players' sleep than. Uh, we were aware of and, and guys tend to not come forward about that stuff but when we start talking about sleep that's when they started coming into my office and they wanted to have conversations and we kind of dig down into that um, wow. and can get them the help that they need but um, to get back a, a little more on on an attractive topic when I was with USA field hockey we measured sleep on our players every night okay. and I worked we, we had a century how'd you measure team. sorry sorry to interrupt how'd you measure it like what was your instrument um, it was uh, it was called Early Sense. It was a piezoelectric sensor, basically measured vibrations, and it went between the mattresses and, and box springs. Okay, and it was a, it was a pad. App. Gotcha. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it connected to an app on the player's phone. And we worked with a company in Israel to create a coach dashboard, which was loosely validated, combining their um, objective sleep information with subjective uh, wellness information and training load information. And we would nice. use that to give us uh, sort of as an input for training. Um, it would give us a, a training readiness score for players, um, which we did not make day-to-day -day decisions off of. We would look at patterns over time and, yeah. and then make decisions. Uh, it became especially useful with long-haul travel. We got to a point using blue light therapy and other modalities where if we were changing time zones by 10 hours, we knew that oh we could be God. fully adjusted within seven to eight days instead of nine to 10 days. Um, and those things make a difference over time. So in the context of baseball, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the sleep community still believes that you know, one of the only successful interventions, non-pharmacological non interventions for sleep is to tell people to spend more time in bed, which is true. Um, but it is very hard or, or a lot of the sleep community does not believe that you can manipulate um, sleep architecture variables, like how much REM sleep do you get, how much deep sleep do you get, outside of we know if you train really hard, you're probably going to spend a little more time in deep sleep, etc. 
Um, but I started to notice things, probably overextending the capability of the technology we had. But if we went on the road and we were staying at a hotel that was noisy, our players' REM sleep, even if they felt like they slept fine, would drop by about 50%. Wow. And so I believe, I, I'm hypothesizing that there are ways to manipulate uh, some of those sleep architecture variables, uh, aside from just uh, sleep hygiene coaching. And uh, that's kind of what I'm interested in, in getting at. <clears throat> what are the uh, first question? Sorry, what are the oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go. I think we're just a couple of seconds delayed, so I just keep interrupting you. Um, what are the um, sort of like average times in, in, in them three zones? I'm, I'm imagining you do like deep and, and core and um, REM sleep, or just roughly. Uh, for deep sleep and REM sleep, is about twenty percent of your night. But when we would travel to those those noisy hotels, REM sleep was usually around actually like seven to nine percent of their sleep per night. How much do you think that that's not all, like, okay, so that was the noisy hotels, not the, uh, you know, just being on the road and the fact of, like, your, you know, subconscious not wanting to let you relax because you're in that new environment. Did you ever start to see that where, um, you know, on the road, nights one and two, okay, not as deep because, again, the brain and the, like, hey, we're not in a uh, safe place yet, and then eventually allowing your body to relax. Have you seen that trend? Yes. Um Typically, the first two days after long-haul travel, our players would crash so hard they would sleep fine anyways, and their sleep would actually look mm. relatively normal, maybe even with increased REM sleep, decreased deep sleep. Um, but after those two days, that's when the crash would come. Yeah. And uh, we would actually see um, overall sleep quality would go down substantially. Lots of disturbances, huge sleep onset latency, sometimes up to several hours. Total sleep time was way down. But then even after we came out of that and um, all their sleep looked normal, they were reporting that they were feeling good. Let's say we'd been there a week. Um, we should be adjusted to the time zone. We would still see, depending on, on the location, we would still see these sort of abnormalities um, in REM sleep. <clears throat> Do you recommend the use of a cooling pad or, I mean, you know, cold room? Or are you an advocate of those things to any of our listeners, to your teams? How do you feel about that? And in your research. So three, three of them right there, boom. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, cooling pads, uh, extremely dark rooms for athletes. Uh, they do make blackout curtains with suction cups or sticky things. So um, if you're going to a hotel and you're not sure, that's a really cheap option. I also recommend getting your, bringing your own pillow with you. Uh, people don't realize how much an uncomfortable pillow changes your sleep. Um, yeah, I, I recommend all of that stuff. Um, even uh, eye masks, earplugs, we would bring those as like a, a travel kit with the field hockey team. <clears throat> how about any, uh, you know, like lavender essential oils? I've heard, and again, I'm just... Now it's, it's, I'm curious, but also for our listeners, like, how do you feel about, you know, any of the, the essential oils or, or lavenders? Um, I don't know. I haven't seen robust research on those. I also haven't looked into them too much. I'm focused much more on the non-pharmacological interventions. And I, I don't know if that would fall into that category or not, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I question the efficacy of that. How about, and uh, I'll, we'll get off the sleep topic on it right after this, but how about like melatonin? What are, your, what are your thoughts on melatonin? Because I've read and seen research of, you know, to and not to do, you know, uh, melatonin. 
Um, I think it can be a good tool for, for a short-term uh, Band-Aid, essentially. It, it certainly works on a lot of people. There are people that have increased sleep disturbances for it, so I would not recommend, like, if you're in a tournament, don't take it for the first time. You should be taking it at home, make sure it actually works for you before uh, beforehand. A lot of people wake up uh, more groggy after they take melatonin, especially if they don't sleep all the way until they wake up without an alarm. Um, so you have to be aware of that. And yeah. uh, if you take melatonin every day for a month and then you try to go to sleep without it, it's a lot harder. So, Excellent point. <clears throat> um, you know, you are the only one in here with a World Series ring. So talk about the – I mean, that's got to be pretty awesome. Like, I mean – what is it like, um, you know, kind of explain the high to, to our listeners out there of like, you know, achieving that pinnacle because that, that is, like you said, that's, you know, ultimately we're here, yes, to serve our athletes and work with them and help them. But to reach the pinnacle, man, like congratulations, like what was it like? like and I know you guys are moving on, so I apologize if I'm, I'm you know, but it's cool. Like that's awesome, man. Like I, I'm curious, like what did you learn from the whole thing in addition to like that just being awesome that you guys did it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with the feeling of it. Uh, it it's in, it's kind of a surreal thing. It's um, sort of hard. It's almost it felt to me like a like an out of body experience. Uh, you know, it's something you you dream about as an athlete growing up, and then you don't make it as a professional athlete, and it's like, all right, maybe I can do this as a coach. And, um, to actually achieve that, yeah, you know, there's there's guys that have been coaching, strength coaches, sport coaches, been coaching for. 30 plus years and have been great coaches that never get that opportunity. So, um, yeah, I, I felt really lucky. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but my dad was on the uh, U.S. Olympic team for judo for uh, 12 plus years. Uh, three, wow. three Olympic cycles. Um, all three times he was in the final match to either make the team or become the alternate. And all three times he lost to somebody he had never lost to before. Oh, um, so he was an alternate three times and um you know if you talk to him today you could tell that it still affects him so uh not that it was my burden to to carry but uh in a sense i always wanted my family to to get to that point so um to do that was was an unbelievable feeling um and then you know it's super exciting for three, four, five days. And then after that, you're like, shit, we're all tied again. We got, <laughs> we got to start over. We got to do this thing all over again. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's something I, I certainly hope to accomplish again in, in my career. And, um, you know, but if I don't, at least I, I know that I've, I've done it once and feel really lucky to have done that. They say success leaves clues. And I mean, your organization has been successful for quite some time. As people look back and they look at, you know, the run of the organization you've been with, again, don't name, you're not, not naming names, confidentiality, but just like what have been some of the overarching themes that you've seen and will continue to take with you in your career as, you know, a human, a husband, a father, you know, because you mentioned all of that before too, and advice to our listeners out there. A couple different avenues. So organizationally, uh, we are we have historically been known for our player development and there are different ways to win championships. You've seen it in all sports. You can, uh, you can pay the best players who are already veterans and reach free agency and do it through free agency. Um, 
which, depending on the sport, may or may not be a, a good long-term solution. Uh, we actually prioritize SNC quite a bit in our organization uh, because it's honestly it's low-hanging fruit in baseball. It's still not uh, you know bigger, faster, stronger. It's still kind of a novel concept. Um, <laughs> Don't want to get bulky. Can't throw a ball or swing a bat. Yeah, yeah. Never mind the you know the whole physics side of putting force into the ground and using that. Um, but, you know, Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, uh, Luis Garcia, a good handful of our guys that were on our World Series roster and hugely impactful for us. We signed for like ten or $20,000 um, uh, at our Dominican Academy. And when they signed for that amount of money, they're initially not looked at as a top prospect right out of the gate. And yeah. it's the development, I'm not saying it's just strength and conditioning, but it's the development of the whole system that allows them to get to the big leagues. And uh, they might have just blossomed a little bit later than, than some other guys. But, um, you know, in baseball, when you get to the big leagues, there's a certain number of years you have to play where you're on league minimum. And then there's a certain number of years where you're going to arbitration. Um, and you don't really reach free agency until several years after being in the big leagues with one team. And so there's huge value brought to the organization by getting players to the big leagues at a young age and not having to do that through free agency because you're getting guys that ultimately might be worth tens of millions of dollars and you're paying them far less money than that because they're in their first couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other side, we had, I think, 67 guys who had been with our org or at least started with our org playing in uh, four major league clubs last year and the average across the league was 47 wow. and so it's not just who makes it to the show with your organization but also um, you know do guys let's say you have an abundance of outfielders and there's just no room for some guys well then you might trade somebody and then they get to go get their shot in the big leagues and that also brings value to the org so uh, the development side of things is a strategy for long-term success and the Astros have been bought into that since before I, I joined. Um, the other side, you know, I think people talk, everybody will tell you, uh, we, we, we understand that this job is about people. It's about relationships. Um, the X's and O's are secondary to that. But I don't see across the strength and conditioning industry, I don't see that actually being practiced. Um, <laughs> you know, the, if you hop on an interview, if I were to be a fly on the wall in most interviews for strength jobs, it's, okay, what would you do in this scenario? Um, tell me what a program looks like. And all the questions you're going to get asked are actually about the X's and O's. Um, I care, uh, I would say, 10% about that level of competence and 90% about are you a good fit for our culture? Are you a good person? Um, and that is really my hiring criteria. And um, that has, has made a huge difference. I, I had uh, very little staff turnover um, this past year. And, uh, you know, when you have good people around, you can keep your group together longer. And the longer you're together, uh, the more successful you're going to be. And the more problems that you solve. Uh, when you have people that are, are not a fit, um, then you just create sort of pinch points or, or roadblocks. And, um, you know, ultimately, if you want to be successful, you need people that are going to solve problems, not people that are going to manufacture them. Amen. I don't think there's a, a better spot to end on that, especially considering the fact that, uh, 
you know, time is precious, you know, being a new father and having a home. So, I mean, congratulations on that. Um, you know, congratulations on the World Series win. You got two more Houston Astro fans here. Um, yeah. <clears throat> anybody that wants to, you know, possibly pick your brain and, and continue to learn from you, where can they do that? Uh, yeah, you can message me on Twitter. It's just Nick, two underscores, Shed. Um, or email me at uh, ShedNW at gmail.com. Shed has two D's, S-H-E-D-D-N-W at gmail.com. Um, like Fernando said, I, I try to be as responsive as I can to everybody. I love talking shop. I'm a pretty social guy, and uh, yeah, I'd love to, to chat with anybody else that wants to uh, talk about this stuff. Appreciate you, man. This, this has been very insightful, and uh, I'm going to steal some of that arm care stuff from my quarterbacks. There you go. Take care. Have a good one.